Sir Balbert and Tijuana Brass. I'm Carson Sestouli. This is Fangraphs Audio. My guest on this edition of Fangraphs Audio is Richard Whittall of the Counterattack blog uh, at the Score family of blogs. If you imagine uh, the Score.com as sort of a family, uh, this is one of the members of that family, the Counterattack blog. Richard Whittall uh, writes about soccer for the Score at the Counterattack blog, and um, what he does in particular, uh, the thing about which I'm particularly interested. Uh, in which we pursued in this conversation is uh, the state of soccer analytics. Of course, I had Brian Burke on recently of Advanced NFL Stats. We discussed football analytics. Um, I guess you could say the state of, of uh, analytics in American football. Uh, this is the state of analytics in what I guess we could call uh, European football. For anyone who's watched a, an English Premier League match or a Champions League match, World Cup match, whatever, you'll certainly be acquainted with the kinds of stats that um, television broadcasts will publish, graphics that they will produce at halftime or whatever of the total shots taken and shots on target, uh, possession, etc. Question, though, which of those, if any of them, which of those those stats correlate with wins, correlate with uh, producing points towards the end uh, in a league, for example, of winning that league's title? Uh, th- that's uh, That tends to be the, the bulk of what we uh, discuss in, in what follows. Richard Whittle also does a, a pretty good job at giving uh, me and uh, therefore listeners a reading list of sorts uh, to help one get acquainted with the work that is currently being done in soccer analytics. Uh, so what is it? It's uh, it's Fangraphs Audio. It features Richard Whittle of The Score uh, and TheScore.com's counterattack blog where Richard Whittle writes. And it begins right now. to brass tacks so far sure. as the pronunciation of your name is concerned sure it's uh richard whittall that's whittall. as simple as it gets yeah it really is yeah that's good that's great um so that's uh this, this is uh, these were logistical matters we've just addressed okay that's good yeah and so um, we're moving beyond them let's go yeah okay very good um i you uh, let's see i am contacting you for this reason uh is that um uh, living as I am in an important European city, um, which we, we've discussed offline, but I'm currently in Paris, uh, I, my interest in world football has only increased. That's uh, good. I'm glad to hear that. Sure. And it's easy because it's, um, it's easy because it just surrounds you, right? I mean, like, especially with, uh, the, the Paris team, Paris Saint Germain, uh, uh, heretofore known as PSG. Uh, playing quite well, uh, playing some inspired football. Um, uh, it's it's all it's all around one as uh, he walks down the streets, and uh, <laughs> uh, and so this maybe say well, uh, part of my job is understanding um, baseball analytics. Um, I have some idea of what's going on in the in the NBA and uh, in the NFL so far as that's concerned. Um, I know that it exists for hockey. I wonder I wonder what's going on uh, so far as soccer is concerned. Um, uh, that's a good question. Uh, a lot of us sort of interested in analytics, uh, ponder that on a daily basis. Um, it, and it really depends on who you talk to. Um, but the general impression is that, uh, of all the, uh, major professional sports you listed, uh, soccer is probably, uh, you know, uh, chugging up behind in last place as far as the developments in analytics are concerned. I think that's changing fairly rapidly. Um, and obviously there's the question that, that uh, most pro sports deals with in analytics talk is what what goes on behind those proprietary walls. But um, you know, based on my impressions, I've been doing work um, sort of studying what's going on in, in football analytics for the last, uh, uh, I guess, two maybe year and a half or so, two years, something like that. Um, my impression now is that uh, that idea that you know that uh, what's going on within the clubs is is miles ahead of what what's going on you know among the uh, you know, I don't want to say amateur, but among the uh, hobbyist uh, analysts, um, I, I really don't think that the two are, are that far apart. So, uh, so that's a little depressing. However, I think that's changing very, very quickly. Um, and there's a, you know, a, a good example is the recent release of um, uh, Sally and Anderson's book, uh, The Numbers Game, which uh, will at least give uh, the analytics movement a little more notoriety. But, uh, but yeah, no, it's it's lagging a little, little behind. 
Um, okay, so first, uh, first of all, we'll, we will just um, uh, uh, establish that you write for the score. Uh, That's which, right. Which yeah. will be known to Fangraphs readers because of getting blanked and uh, Drew Fair services over there. Craig Robinson has contributed. A lot of Fangraphs writers have actually contributed. Uh, Dustin Parks is over there as well. I, I assume that you see them in the building sometimes. I'm staring at uh, the back of Drew Fair services head right now. He's uh, talking very animatedly. I think about baseball, in fact. So, uh, so yeah, absolutely. It's a little little brain trust we have here. Uh, yeah, well, it's good to hear he's doing his job. Yeah, yeah. No, he's working. He's got two monitors on. Uh, at least one is on his uh, publishing software. So, uh, so he is he is doing work. Um, and uh, he's he's having he's having a really good time because he's doing all these uh, approaches, uh, player approaches. Um, and uh, he got some major major gets. So uh, so I'm plugging my colleague here. Uh, Drew Drew is uh, one of a kind. He's great. He's good. And he also has a uh, an excellent baritone voice, I believe. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He uh, he has a voice made for podcasting, uh, unlike myself. Although we do both host our own shows, uh, uh, I looked up to Drew's show for a long time. So uh, big shoes, uh, or I guess big path to follow. But there it is. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. But yeah. So so yeah so so with regard to so the, the way I came to your work was you you've uh, you did recently as part of a recurring column you do. Um, at the score, uh, you, you sort of write under the auspices of the Counterattack blog. Yeah, yeah, that's right. And you uh, you will occasionally do a, uh, a, a sort of a piece called The State of Analytics. That's right. And I've actually been running that call. I think it's like a year. It might say be a year and I think it's like 14 months I've been doing it now. It started off I was just going to do uh, – I just was interested in what was going on because, you know, everyone around here um, has their, you know uh, – Either one or both feet um, within the respective analytics movements in their sports. So, uh, so I decided to do a bit of investigative work, um, and I thought it would honestly be like a month, two month long series, but it ended up becoming a recurring column. Um, and it, you know, I ended up doing all this fun stuff. I went to to Sloan uh, in March, which was a huge eye opener as far as uh, the relative health of, uh, of of soccer analytics in general. Uh, but yeah, no, it's just there, it, 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 it's developing so quickly, uh, that there's still material to, to sort of pump out each, each and every week. Um, uh, so yeah, no, it's, it's been really interesting. Now, in terms of, um, figuring out exactly what it is that you're, you're interested in and what you're not interested in, um, I, I think that your, uh, the primer you did recently, um, and may, maybe you've done one of these before, but you did a sort of a primer of, uh, advanced stats or, or, um, you know, soccer analytics. And you made a distinction um, between the, between stats and analytics that I think uh, is helpful to understand soccer analytics is also uh, helpful to understand analytics generally. And it would be inter- interesting for Fangrass readers. And I was wondering if you could sort of summarize your, your point. Yeah, that. yeah, that, that's a good point. Um, I'm sort of a huge uh, Daniel Kahneman uh, guy, and he's that Nobel winning uh, Nobel Prize winning economist who wrote uh, Thinking Fast and Slow. And, um, one of the main sort of points, and you know, and guys also like, you know, uh, you know, NASA, uh, uh I'm talking about, it, um, the guy who wrote the Black Swan. NASA, um, Nassim Nicholas Taleb? That's right. Yeah. And, um, and, uh, um, The Success Equation by Michael Mann. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. So, you know, you know the sort of hit list. And the big, the big, uh, thing that they like to talk about is that making the distinction between, Random variation and repeatability. And the problem is when you're at a sort of a nascent point in an analytics movement and you, especially when in, in a sport like soccer, so they call it like a, you know, I think the academic term is a team invasion sport, right? And so the common um, refrain from people on the outside of soccer analytics is to say, well, it's not like baseball because baseball has these discrete events that you can uh, parse out their uh, their regular it, football is you know uh, it's a game in constant transition constant turnovers um, you know there's a lot a lot of random variation that goes on the pitch blah 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 you can't yeah, you know you can't parse out these individual statistics um, but as data collection improves that obviously changes so you get these companies like Opta uh, Infostrata um, you know uh, uh, Prozone which has been operating I think in the UK since 1998 so. The technology in in, um, in data collection has really improved, um, but the firms, you know, that that's been their meat and potatoes for so long. Has been offering raw data both to clubs and then um, in recent years to to the public at large. Um, the temptation is to just look at this data without any context, without any understanding whether or not it's a product of um, you know it's a product of random variation or underlying talent. 
um, that work isn't being done um, a lot of the time by uh, by people who purport to know about these statistics. And so you'll get things like um, you know player pass completion rates, uh, you know you know kilometers run per game. Um, you know, touches per game. There's no context to this. We don't know, you know, the, there's little context added in terms of their position or, you know, the, the total number of passes they made uh, in the game, um, whether or not it's even remarkable that they completed a high number of passes, particularly let's say it's a defensive midfielder and they're just cycling the ball back between either the center backs or the, the, the goalkeeper and not making much forward movement. You could make the argument that, you know, a high pass completion rate in that situation isn't really useful. So the whole problem is, is if you get all this data and you don't really have, um, you know, you're not using it in a way uh, that really looks at, um, you know, whether or not it's it's predictive um, and therefore, you know, uh, sort of useful from an analytics standpoint, um, you know, you're, you're kind of doing a disservice to, uh, you know, to statistics at large. And the problem is, is that, uh, I don't know. I don't. I don't know how long you've been in Europe, but you know, football is a pretty conservative sport, and uh, so a lot of, uh, you know, there's a lot of people who uh, are immediately skeptical about statistics in general, and especially in the UK, where there's a perception that statistics in sports is a very American thing, and so if um, there's there's reasonable skepticism in saying, well, you know, these numbers, they don't tell you the whole story, particularly in a sport like soccer, and a lot of people uh, will say that's the, you know. Uh, that you know that's the last uh, last word on the subject um and it's frustrating because there's a lot of a lot of decent analysis being done and it's just not getting as much attention and that analysis is going beyond just taking the raw data but looking into seeing whether it's actually uh, predictive useful um can say something meaningful about an individual individual player or team and that sort of thing so so that's really what where my my interest in analytics lies and i guess for that reason i'm way more interested now in in things like um, you know, betting models and, and betting analytics in general because, you know, it tends to look at teams as they are as opposed to trying to immediately go down the sort of uh, money ball route and trying to figure out ways to sort of, uh, uh, you know, to to seek out market inefficiencies and in acquiring players. Like, analytics is nowhere near being able to do that. Um, so it's, 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 it's far more interesting to me to look at you know, simple things that we can figure out first and then and then move there into the more complex things. Right, yeah. And it's interesting. I mean, obviously, uh, in baseball, there there exists or at least has existed more strongly in the past. Uh, th- I'm speaking to you, um, this sort of uh, perhaps hesitancy among the British to entirely embrace analytics, which is to say that it, it removes the human element uh, mm-hmm. uh, from the sport or – I think in one of your columns, actually, you sort of looked at uh, – you mentioned it, it removes the romance from the sport. Um, mm-hmm. There is a uh, there is an, an instinct um, among a certain population of fans to want to, um, you know, not, not let numbers get involved at all. And I, and I think that the point you make and, and one I would certainly echo is uh, typically the, the, the fans – it sounds like this is a, very true of yourself – is um, you are excited about the analytics – uh, because you're, because you like the sport, you like football quite a bit, and you want to understand, uh, you want to have a better understanding of what leads to wins and losses, essentially. Yeah, I mean, yeah, that's absolutely right. I think, uh, like I said, I think that's why I think the betting angle is is most fa- uh, um, sort of fascinating to me because, um, like I said, it, it doesn't. It, it doesn't want to, it's not trying to run out there with statistics and say, look, you know, uh, managers are doing this wrong or they should be buying these players because it doesn't really have the authority yet to do so and it may never have that authority. But uh, what's far more interesting to me, um, like one of my heroes, I kind of think he's like, uh, I don't know, the Tom Tango or, or Phil Birnbaum of the, the football analytics movement, but he's a he's a British expat based in Victoria, British Columbia um, named uh, James Grayson. And uh, he started off with the most simple, just just ran some linear regressions on some very very simple things, um, and figured out that uh, you know that a fairly stable uh, predictive metric was this thing that he ended up terming total shots ratio, and it's basically just uh, basically just measuring um, you know ratio of uh, shots for a team against uh, the shots they concede over a set number of games, and figured out that this was pretty predictive. Um, over a 38-game season, which is the length of the season of the Premier League in the UK, um, of how teams will generally, how many points teams will generally get in the table, and uh, and just the most, you know, at a point where everyone considered thought that analytics had to be this complex thing with, you know, big data and, and finding out key performance indicators, he took this extraordinarily simple metric that had been measured by 
um, teams for the last, you know, 13, 14 seasons and uh, figured out that it was actually predictive. And no one had, you know, no one had done that in a way and in such a public way in the last decade. Um, and that to me is, it's, it's fascinating. And then, um, and then, you know, you compare that to, uh, to other concepts like, uh, we talked earlier about random variation. So things that look like they might be meaningful, but, but tend, uh, tend to regress fairly quickly to the mean. So one of those concepts is actually borrowed from hockey. And we can talk a bit about hockey in a moment because I think that's a really important, um, part of this discussion. But, you know, um, Grayson and a few other people figured out that, uh, that the concept in hockey, it's a, it's an annoying, um, metric. At least the name of the metric's annoying. It's PDO. But uh, but basically it, it's simple. It's so simple. It just adds up a team's uh, save percentage and shot percentage, and uh, and you just uh, times it by a thousand. And uh, because it uh, it regresses so uh, quickly to the mean, if a team's you know if a team's looking like um, you know they're otherwise dominant, but uh, uh, but they have a very low PDO, chances are they're probably going to improve as the season progresses um, because. Uh, you know, uh, because it, you know, regresses so quickly to the mean. Anyways, not to like get, you know, get into the too technical about it, but the main point I'm trying to get across is these are very, very simple, uh, easy to measure metrics that uh, are incredibly powerful when you combine the two. And then when you actually put that in context in terms of how teams play and you see where the metrics work and where they don't and, and you figure out why they work in certain cases and why they don't work in other cases, it's fascinating. It becomes another reason to, uh, to want to keep watching the sport um, at year after year because you just learn more and more and there's just this whole other area of which you can get into a game that for many people is just so familiar. So, uh, for, so yeah, there's definitely a, it's definitely like a, there's a contemplative value for me. There's an aesthetic value for me. There's uh, an empirical thing. It's just, it, I have to write about soccer every day because it's my job um, and I have to keep it interesting and, uh, and analytics I just find uh, it doesn't kill the romance. It actually opens up, uh, you know, other areas of mystery in the game that I didn't even know existed, kind of. So, so yeah, not to sound too evangelist, inven, you know what I mean? Yeah, uh, I evangelistic. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But, uh, but yeah, no, I just find it fascinating. Well, here, so here's, here's a question, and, uh, you've touched on some of these things, but I'd sort of like to, to organize this a little bit is, <clears throat> um, of course, baseball fans will be familiar with this concept. You know, you see, uh, um, you see, uh, the stats that are posted for a certain player, for example, will give his average and uh, how many home runs he's hit in RBIs. Or, you know, there might be some information um, on the game. You know, we see runs, hits, and errors, et cetera. Um, this happens in, in uh, uh, football, too, where, you know, at halftime, for example, you'll see um, you, you'll see a graphic that indicates the number of shots, uh, shots on target. Uh, maybe, you know, corner kicks one. Uh, fouls, fouls conceded, uh, and uh, maybe yeah, something like time of possession, or, or sometimes I know it's just it's called just possession. I think some of the possession metrics are actually uh, weighted based on passing. Um, but I'm curious, f- first of all, uh, when we see those, how helpful are the stats that we're seeing on just like a graphic, you know, during um, halftime of a Champions League match, uh, and then and then w- what are the stats that or the metrics that have been created, you've touched on a couple of them, if you want to develop those more too, been created that are maybe telling us or giving us better information. Well, the problem is within a single game, um, you know, uh, I think it was, I think uh, Chris Anderson wrote about it a bit in the numbers game, is that within a single game, you're looking at, you know, 50-50, like it's pretty... It's almost a, a toss-up between, um, you know, luck and uh, and the underlying talent of both teams. Um, so the problem is, is that those numbers will basically tell you how the course of the game is going, but they don't necessarily tell you anything that's going to be meaningful beyond even that 90 minutes. It's just basically to say one team is clearly superior to the other at this point. Um, and you could look at any of those. I mean, possession, that that's a controversial topic. Possession isn't always necessarily as meaningful as people think it is, um, and uh, you could look at, you know, if you, if you wanted to take any one of those that you mentioned, I think you could take uh, just something as simple as um, looking at uh, the, the shots on goal, the shots conceded relative to the scoreline, and then you have an under underlying, you have a fairly good understanding that, um, you know, if a team is out shooting another team, um, but they're they're losing the game, then 
then you have an idea that maybe the inferior opponent um, is, uh, you know, overperforming or whatever. But you, you couldn't say that in any statistically meaningful way because, again, like the games are so subject to to random variation that that you shouldn't get too caught, carried away with those those statistics. I think they're fun to look at, but I really. You know, and I think that they'll tell you generally how the course of a game is going, but as far as telling you anything absolute about either team, um, I, I don't think they're that useful. Um, as far as the metrics that have been developed, this is the thing. I think they're interesting, but um, they're really, like uh, I mentioned the shots ratio, total shots ratio, um, the Grayson metric. Uh, you know, that's a really interesting statistic, but it doesn't become consistent and stable until, you know, four to six games. Um, and at that point, you know, there's a few other factors that come into play that, that you know, um, temper its usefulness as far as uh, predicting where a team's going to finish. So, um, so the problem is you're, you're still even with uh, you know these these interesting predictive metrics, you're still kind of looking through a glass darkly. There's still a uh, you know a deviation, standard deviation that you have to to consider. Um, so there's there's going to be no perfect model, um, you know, in the long term, and and that definitely means that in the short term, there's really not much that that's going to be useful for you as well. Um, now, a lot of people listening to this, if they're soccer analytics, particularly if they develop betting models, they'll probably disagree with me. But um, you know, they'll have their own sort of uh, means to, to figure out, uh, you know, how to beat the lines on on single games, and they could probably be far more articulate about their methods than me. But but I'm kind of more interested in, in the long term stuff anyway. Now, um, you do mention in well, you mentioned it a couple of places, and uh, I, I think it's it's sort of um, it's something that's been borne out um, empirically. Um, or at least by, by way of models in the um, in the, the soccer analytics community. Um, in this particular case, this is from a, a piece you wrote um, uh, at the score called Hockey Analytics uh, Integral for Soccer Stats, but with some key differences. Mm-hmm. And um, you quoted Cam, uh, Cam uh, Sharon or Sharon? Yeah, I think it's Sharon, yeah. Yeah, let's go with Sharon. Uh, shots are a hell of a lot more predictive than goals for determining future events. Um, goals are, and then you, you say goals are stochastic, shots are deterministic. One thing that's interesting about that for me is, uh, and I think that um, I, sort of um, uh, equating myself with some of Grayson's work, you mentioned James Grayson, the, the British expat in British Columbia, uh, is that, uh, in fact, shots uh, shots themselves are more predictive even than shots on target. Um, you, you might know more about this than me, but that seems uh, – I don't know if it seems – like it should make sense or not, but uh, but it's more predictive of um, season uh, of points um, at the end of the season than shots on target. Yeah, um, yeah. I mean that, that that was sort of when he ran the original uh, regressions. That was sort of the conclusion he came to. Um, and I think uh, the, the way that he, he, I think he did dedicated maybe a sentence to it, but uh, he basically said you should. It's not the shots that are important. Um, it's the it's what they represent, and it's really just the fact that if a team is shooting more uh, than you know, uh, taking more shots than they're they're conceding on a regular basis, you get an idea that this team is able to control the ball in the final third of the opposition uh, half. And if a team does that, they're going to create more scoring opportunities and they're going to score more goals. Um, now that's not always the case, and and Manchester United was a good example. They had a, a TSR that you know generally would have. Um, you know, on paper would have predicted a much lower points total than they ended up last season. And there are a host of theories as to why, um, you know, United overperformed, um, everything from, you know, how United attacks, um, their efficiency in, in, in taking the chances that they did create. You know, that, that's a de- debate that some people are still, still having to this day. But, um, but generally, I think the idea is that, that, uh, it's very, very, it's just, it's, it, it, it's almost as simple as it seems. It's just that, it, you know, a team is if a team is able to control the ball more in the opposition final third, um, you know that indicates that their players are, you know, pretty pretty good, uh, that they're able to create more chances and they're going to score more goals and, and therefore finish higher up um, in the table as the season progresses. Um, now there are a few people who pointed out that um, that you know there are problems with with the shots ratio. I think Martin Eastwood, who's now works for. Uh, for onside analytics is one of those guys who, who did a, you know, his own regression and disagreed with a few things with Grayson, but he could speak to that more than I could. But, uh, but generally, yeah, I mean, um, in hockey, for example, they, they always talk about how, uh, you know, uh, Corsi and Fenwick, they're just uh, proxies for possession. Um, so it, it's, you know, again, it's, it, the idea is that if a team has the, you know, if they're controlling the puck more, they're taking more shots as a matter of course. I, I'm not quite certain that's exactly the same. In, in football for a number of reasons, but uh, but that's the basic idea. 
Yeah, actually, trying to illustrate one of those points, you pointed to um, a sport that's played in Russia, I believe. Called, yeah. Called is it bandy or something? Yeah, bandy. Yeah, yeah. I yeah. mean, it's cre- it's it's essentially hockey on a rink the size of a soccer field. Yeah, it's crazy. I didn't even know it existed, and uh, uh, neither did the uh, the hockey writer here, Justin Bourne, which was kind of amazing. But uh, but yeah, I mean, um, so the basic thing is. Uh, I mean, it, it's on my own theory, and I have nothing to back it up. But uh, but the reason I'm not quite convinced, um, you know, I think one of the main differences between soccer and hockey, as far as they've both been able to use each other, um, certainly soccer more than hockey, um, uh, looking at each other's, uh, you know, respective uh, fancy stats. But um, uh, the main difference is that uh, uh, soccer, it's just so much more territorial, um, and uh, the position of the opposition players matters a lot, lot more. You know, you can talk about the offside rules as being part of that, but uh, uh, but there are a lot of, you know, there are situations, um, you know, teams push up uh, if they're chasing a lead, uh, for example, they leave more space at the back, um, and uh, the opposition team's, uh, um, you know, shot conversion rate goes up, um, and that's a measurable effect. I think the same thing happens in, in hockey with scoring effects. Um, but, you know, you see a lot of those the situations arise in soccer and, and you just get the sense that uh, um, that uh, it's a lot easier to it's a lot easier in soccer to um, to score goals um, without necessarily having, the, you know, the same shot dominance that you'd see in, in hockey, for example. But that's that's just my own personal theory. And and, uh, you know, might be challenged by someone uh, far more intelligent than me. So we'll see. You mentioned you did mention um, the, the the degree to which uh, total shots ratio it, it can serve as a proxy for um, for the, the the way a team is possessing the ball. Um, and you you even mentioned the final third. I, I thought I had seen somewhere the, the value or maybe lack of value of just possession stats uh, for the f- um, possession in the final third of you know or an opponent's third. Um, and I'm curious as to, to what the state is of that or if that's uh, contested or if it's just hard to, to control to keep that data. Yeah. Um, I, well, I mean, I don't I think I haven't heard the final third um, stats, but I do know that the overall possession stats aren't always particularly useful. That's not to say they're useless. Um, and, uh, you know, particularly good teams will, will generally have, you know, uh, above you know 50% possession on a regular basis, but uh, but they're not always like MLS for example was famous for a long time for uh, the fact that the teams that finished up higher on the table you know were regularly posting uh, less than 50% uh, possession in their games. Um, and if you think about that, uh, think about what happens in a football game, uh, uh, football match. You know a lot of it uh, is like I said before, like it's a defensive midfielder cycling the ball back to their um, um, you know, their center backs. Have you ever seen Dutch football, for example? It's a, uh, you know, in the Eredivisie in Holland, you know, a lot of teams like Ajax and, and PSV will, will, uh, you know, you'll see it constantly as a tactic. If they can't move the ball forward, they'll just cycle it, um, you know, between their, uh, um, between their center backs. And some teams, you know, knows, know that a team's going to do this. So they'll play deeper to draw the opposition forward, um, and in doing so, create space behind uh, the opposition defense so that they can play on the counterattack. And so those counterattacking situations, I think, are much more important in soccer for obvious reasons than they are in hockey, which is why, again, um, you know, you get why there's a bit of weakness in, in just looking at uh, shot dominance as a, as a measure of, of uh, how, how well a team is doing. So, um so yeah, I mean, uh, but it's also indicative of why possession isn't the be-all and end-all uh, in soccer that a lot of people think it is, and that 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 still exists, unfortunately. Um, a lot of commentators they'll immediately take on, you know, they'll see Barcelona play um, Celtic and and see that the possession, you know, Barcelona's possession stats are like seventy percent to seventy-five percent, which is obviously outrageous, but um, and, and use that as a marker of some sort of underlying quality. Now, obviously, keeping the ball isn't a tremendous skill, but uh, but I wouldn't use it as like a you know, I wouldn't use it as a final word in any discussion about the quality of one team versus another, basically. Well, I also I know that uh, when I would watch uh, soccer quite a bit, um, say in the in the mid two thousands, mid to late two, um, you know, two twenty aughts, I guess the aughts. Yeah, the aughts. Yeah, let's call them the aughts. Uh, I know that um, Arsenal, um, impressed is still the case. I, I think that I mean they're having quite a good season. I think to start, uh, uh, they were always um, they always played a, a very Highly, uh, a, a, 
um, passing and possession oriented uh, style. And it would, um, if they, you know, weren't scoring, um, or if they were scoring, it was great. It was it looked very pretty. But if they weren't scoring, uh, commentators would be very quick uh, to point out that maybe Arsenal should just shoot the ball uh, once in a while, as opposed to uh, essentially waiting to. And the, 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 the phrase you hear over and over was waiting to pass the ball into the net. Um, yeah, the accusation. Um, yeah, they, they, oh, go ahead, well, I was going to say it's Arsenal's always walking it into the net. That's the thing. Our Arsenal players always want to walk it into the net. And they never want to shoot. That, that was always the old joke. Right, and so my question is, what um, this conversation we have, where does that sort of style of play, even if it's not Arsenal specifically, but what do we know about that sort of style of play, and and uh, if it has any effect whatsoever, or or what, what its um, implications are in the context of this conversation? Um, well, um, I think uh, in the early chapters of the numbers game, uh, I think uh, the thing is it doesn't un- it doesn't change the dynamics at all between the relationship between the number of shots and goals, like. There's this famous ratio called the Reap ratio after Charles Reap, who was sort of like the, uh, you know, progenitor of uh, of uh, the analytics movement in soccer, and he was a RAF wing commander back in the 1950s, uh, who was also an accountant, and he he measured all these stats, and um, he, he was responsible for some bad things that happened stylistically in English football, which you can talk about later, maybe or not at all. But one of the things he discovered that was definitely true is that there's a very stable ratio. That exists in soccer, which is, you know, I think it's uh, one goal for every nine shots. And um, what, you know, what people have generally figured out is that despite all the talk about tactics, um, the different stylistic differences between teams and leagues, um, you know, the underlying mechanics of, of the relationship between shots and goals um, in terms of their distribution is, is pretty static. So it, it doesn't really um, change anything, but it is just a different uh, it's a style that has its own pitfalls and its own positives. Um, obviously, possession game. Uh, the, the principle is that if you know if a, if a team has more of the ball on a regular basis, they're preventing the other team from scoring, because obviously you can only score if you if you're in possession of the ball. Now that sounds great. However, you run into the problems, and Barcelona is running into these issues as well. Uh, and their current manager Teta Martino sort of um, was addressing them a little at the beginning of the year. If you play. Uh, uh, you know, a possession-based game, and uh, it means you're, you're attacking a lot of the time, which is great because you're creating chances. But it, again, like I mentioned earlier, it uh, it leaves you vulnerable to the counterattack. So, um, you know, a team obviously they might have a, a striker, a lone striker, a little farther up the pitch. Um, they'll just uh, kick a long ball and hopefully catch out the uh, opposition back line, um, and then uh, you know take advantage of the space in, in front of the striker and, and score. Um, and that happens a lot. So. Um, you know, possession football is, is really, really demanding. Uh, it's tiring because um, teams that play a possession style, one of the things they do, it's called pressing. So when they're out of possession, they'll immediately surround uh, the player uh, on the opposition side with the ball and uh, try to get back possession as quickly as possible. Um, and uh, that's very, very physically demanding. Um, so you need not only technically gifted players who, uh, you know, will finish their, all their passes, um, have an immaculate first touch and never lose possession. And you also need guys with the stamina to, uh, to press to get the ball back. So it's pretty rare that you'll see uh, teams, um, you know, effectively using that tactic, uh, you know, over a number of years. Obviously, Barcelona, the recent Barcelona is a pretty pretty big exception to that. Um, I would say the, the Spanish national team as well. Uh, Arsenal is a little bit of a different case. Um, you know, they definitely play a possession style. I think a few differences um, uh, to what you'd see in Spain. But, uh um, but you know they they haven't won a trophy in in a, a major trophy in English football in eight years. Um, I don't think that has anything to do with necessarily with Wenger's you know attachment to to possession football. But it's just an indication that um, it's not always uh, it's not always a superior tactic um, as far as uh, as far as winning is concerned. So yeah. Yeah. Well, and it's interesting you discuss Barcelona too, right? And they clearly have. Um uh, they put a, a, an emphasis on possession, and, and they have a lot of technically gifted players, and have had, you know, uh, especially over the last decade, I suppose. I mean, um, I remember the teams with, well, I suppose Iniesta and, and Messi are still there, uh, and I, I, I guess ja, is Xavi still on the, the mm-hmm. club as well? Yeah, he's still there. Yeah, right. And um, and so I guess between those three, um, and then you know they've had other sort of players come and go, and they they t- have typically employed strikers. Uh, who were also technically gifted and could participate, but I, I do know it seemed as though uh, it was a difficult. Uh, it was difficult for them when they would play uh, physical teams, um, like Chelsea, for example. Uh, and when when Chelsea would gain possession of the ball, 
Barcelona, especially the Barcelona after, I guess, Yaya Torre departed for Man City, uh, they didn't have any anyone who was particularly good at winning the ball back. Um, and and they were also at the mercy of uh, maybe some um, airborne airborne style of play. Um, although maybe, again, maybe I'm just regurgitating what uh, I've heard match commentators say. Well, it, yeah, I mean, the counter to that would be to say, you know, they, they did get uh, Javier Mascarano, who was, who was notorious for doing that for a long time. Um, and, uh, you know, he was, he was definitely a guy who... Uh, who uh, would uh, be winning the ball, you know, in front of the, the central defense? He also plays as, as a as a center back as well from time to time, um, and then obviously, uh, uh, yeah, Busquets as well um, was another player who was, uh, you know, that was his sort of specialty. Um, uh, you know, I, I think uh, I think unfortunately, um, you know, uh, Barcelona's uh, defensive defensive strength and physicality is a little uh, underrated, perhaps because they play such a gorgeous possession game in the midfield, but um, they do definitely do have some strength at the back. So I think there is a balance there. Um, it just might not be as, as obvious because, you know, they're not, you know, it's not it's not like English football where a lot of the time a good defender is rated based on the fact that they'll perform a beautiful slide tackle in, in, in their, their own, you know, their own third of the pitch, which, you know, looks great and looks awesome and you sort of associate it with, with good defending, but a lot of times it means that defenders had to track back. And it's sort of cleaning up for for mistakes that other players have made. So, um, so yeah, there's two sides of that coin. But uh, but yeah, no, you need um, you need both. I think uh, you need a balance. You can't. I think that was a criticism that Arsenal had for a long time. It was uh, you know, like after uh, you know they didn't have this sort of Patrick Vieira esque player uh, to sort of be strong in front of the central defense and and uh, really direct the play. Um, you know, they had guys like Abu Diaby who's trying to do that for a long time and wasn't quite as able. And I'm, you know, I'm not sure that they've ever really solved that that problem in a in a in an important way, and we'll see how it pans out this season because they're obviously in first place. But, uh, um, but yeah, no, I think I think you need that balance for sure. No, you mentioned this uh, this RAF pilot uh, from the 50s uh, slash accountant who um, stumbled upon uh, this this uh, realization that generally speaking, there's one goal for every nine shots in football. You said. Um, he also perhaps uh, um, contributed to some less um, less than excellent strategies that, that have been employed in England. What, what was uh, what is that? Well, um, so uh, basically, um, Charles Reap, for a long time, he's kind of a villain, uh, and he was for me too. And I've sort of done a bit of a 180 um, because as much as uh, as much as he made some errors in judgment based on uh, what he knew from, you know, basically the underlying statistics of football, uh, he was one of the first guys to really take take it seriously, and he was definitely one of the first guys to uh, to sort of have his views on the ideal way for the game to be played. You know, find them find themselves being used by by uh, pretty important managers in English football. Um, uh, Graham Taylor being the sort of leading leading advocate um, with Watford in the 1980s. Um, uh, basically, so Reap's thesis was he he came to the conclusion that uh, um, that uh, because obviously because there's this sort of uh, static relationship between shots and goals, it would make sense for teams to shoot as as often as they possibly could. Um, and he also noticed that most goals came after movements, you know, of uh, I think was it three movements or less. So um, and there's a lot of controversy about that. Uh, the usefulness of that statistic, um, but uh, but basically his idea of uh, the optimal way to play football would be to get the ball as far up the pitch as possible as quickly as possible uh, and take um, take a shot um, you know within you know two or three passes and uh, this this uh, this tactic became known as the long ball game. Um, Graham Taylor sort of used it. Um, there's a great uh, if anyone wants to Google it, they can uh, Google Graham Taylor. Um, uh, tactics, and I think uh, there's a video. Can't remember on which website when he talks about his uh, the idea of the uh, of, of the long ball or direct football, as it's called. And it's great because he actually views it as an attacking. A lot of people see it as like a negative tactic because um, one of the advantages of the long ball is you can play a sort of flat, compact defense. So maybe you have a flat back four with a you know a four man midfield. Um, you can play pretty tightly together. Like um, Stoke was known uh, in the Premier League. Stoke was known for doing this under Tony Pulis for a long time. Um, 
and the idea is, is that uh, you'd have this compact defense, and then um, and then you'd send the ball long to a tall, strong center forward who could take the ball, uh, muscle off any defenders, and uh, take a shot as quickly as possible. Um, now, I used to think, you know, the, the going thing for a long time is, you know, that this was a naive English tactic. It was ugly football. It was cynical. It didn't require technic, uh, you know, it didn't require gifted players to to use. Um, and, uh, you know, it's really, really boring to watch as a spectator, but, um, I'm no, I'm no longer certain it's as cut and dry as that anymore. And I'm also no longer certain that, that any team ever really used it as a, um, you know, as a one size fits all situation tactic. And I think it's, this is a problem. And I'm, I'm a bit skeptical about, um, tactical discussions because, uh, we tend to see tactics as this very rigid, um, approach where they change their dynamic based you know, within a 90-minute game and based on the opposition. Um, but this is definitely something that people believed and was definitely a guiding force in English football um, for a long time. Uh, and Graham Taylor himself became, you know, uh, like Watford was pretty successful um, in, the, uh, in the English football league system. And, uh, and Taylor himself became an England, England manager in the, in the early 1990s. So, um, so it was definitely an in vogue uh, approach for, for a long, long time. Um, and, uh, you know, teams to... to Often to lesser degrees, use it use it to this day. So, so as much as I think it was based on unsound statistical principles, um, uh, you know, I think it was a problem of uh, you know the observer effect. You just sort of uh, as soon as you sort of try and bend uh, the empirical stats to your will, then they they don't work out quite the way you want them to. But I think you know for teams that didn't couldn't afford the best most gifted players, I think it was a, a reasonable approach. Right. Yeah, it's uh that's interesting because I will say that um until you've just mentioned it here, I have been uh myself uh, of course you know looking to derive as much satisfaction out of a game as possible and also generally speaking not um not really having a rooting interest um except for <laughs> my own pleasure. Uh yeah, what you typically think of as long ball, there is a certain uh naivety and um uh a sort of um aesthetic dis it, it it's ugly is the point. Is what yeah, it can say. be ugly. It's definitely ugly. I mean, anyone who's ever watched Stoke under Pulis knows what it, I mean. It's you know you'd have uh, you'd have this very um, you know there's a, an English player Dean Whitehead um, and he's just this sort of Hulk of a person uh, and he was just existed to be the strong man. If you look at their passing statistics, it was just you know mid, the two midfielders passing almost within a yard with one another and then tons of long balls coming from the, the often from the keeper directly to the to the center forward who's Peter Crouch who is this you know anyone who's seen Peter Crouch he's an enormously tall lanky guy um and so uh yeah it was and no one would ever say it was fun to watch Stoke people love watching Swansea you know under Brendan Rodgers and and then Michael Ladrup because they played this you know fast-paced uh, possession-based attacking style uh, no one liked watching Stoke. So there's definitely an aesthetic component, but, you know, uh, Stoke, for all their faults, um, managed to survive in the Premier League, uh, hooker by crook for a long time. Uh, Pulis got into a lot of criticism because, you know, people associate long ball with sort of, uh, f- with teams who can't afford great players, but Pulis actually spent a lot, uh, on team personnel, and it was almost as if, um, you know, he sort of made, uh, he made long ball into an ideal as opposed to a, you know, a practical, uh, you know, practical default. So, uh, um, in doing so, he had to, he had to acquire players to fit the long ball system. And, and in doing so, he had actually spent a lot of money. So, um, so there's some criticism there. Um, but, uh, I think as far as like a tactic that teams use, I mean, famously Barcelona, um, I think it was, uh, Gerard Piquet who was, who was, uh, speaking to reporters and he mentioned that Tata Martino was, was introducing a long ball, um, approach, and uh, towards the declining, um, you know, 15 minutes of a game. The reason being is that, uh, Barcelona would find themselves maybe hemmed in after taking a lead, uh, defending it, and, you know, they're tiring out. And they realized, well, they could probably just consolidate their lead if they were playing compact and they just sent the ball forward and had, you know, maybe Alexis Sanchez or, or Messi chase it down. So even these, uh, you know, teams with, you know, the hallowed, aesthetically pleasing, technically difficult uh, tiki-taka, you know, even they from time to time will, will employ the long ball. So you don't want to be overly dismissive of it. Now, uh, Dean Whitehead seems to be an interesting player because I'm uh, just looking him up um, illicitly here while, while you were talking. <laughs> he He's credited um, in terms of his playing position uh, as, in one case, as a, Maybe a striker, as a center midfielder, and as a as a right back as well. Um, yeah, so yeah. What is, what is he actually? 
Uh, I, I don't know. When I saw him play, you know, uh, mostly in midfield, attacking midfield, I'd say. Um, so, uh, but he, he's, he's a, the thing is about Stoke, there's a lot of versatility in that team because they're not, positionally, they're not, uh, they're not tracking all over the pitch. So, um, so yeah, it's, it doesn't really surprise me that, that, uh, that he was, you know, moved around as often as he was. Yeah. He's also, he's a little bit, uh, funny looking, maybe. Um... Yeah. He's a big jaw. Yeah, yeah, like yeah, like a lantern. I would say it was it's lantern esque. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He was a very he's a terrifying player to watch. <laughs> to put it. Yeah, yeah. And he also did not score very many goals. Now I wonder, um, is this what uh, I remember a couple of years ago, or maybe it's like five years ago now? Fabio Capello, um, who was then uh, managing the, the the English national team, seemed to have a a bit of a preoccupation with Emil Heskey. Um, who maybe at one point in his career had uh, had been valuable, um, but he he um, he hadn't played. I don't think with the national side for some time, and uh, Capello used him whenever he could. It seemed. Yeah, um, I couldn't speak as much to that. I mean, Heskey was, you know, uh, poor Heskey. He, uh, he he had a lot of promise, uh, particularly when he was at Liverpool, and then um, and then it uh, it diminished fairly quickly. Um, you know, he played for for the club that I support, Aston Villa, for a while, and uh, you know it wasn't a disaster, but uh, um, you know it wasn't uh, wasn't really particularly spectacular either. Um, uh, why Capello used him? Well, he had a lot of history with the uh, the English national team. Um, you know, I think it was just the idea of that international experience is important to some managers. So, regardless of uh, what Heskey was doing at the club level, I think he just thought, you know, this is a player. We can take along with us, but um, I'm not even sure the last England cap Heskey had. It feels like it was must have been over two years ago, but uh, you know, there's a lot of soccer to watch, so it could be my brain. Yeah, um, notably now he's playing in the. Uh, I guess Emil Heskey's playing in it looks like Australia, perhaps. Yeah, yeah, yeah. that's right. Well, there yeah. you go. All right, very interesting there. Um, sure. Oh, listen. So, uh, well, you've I think uh, you've uh, you've given us a lot to work with here, um, but b- before you go, I'm curious. Uh, you've mentioned some texts, some sites. Uh, if you could, uh, one of them has been the um, the numbers game. What uh, can you just briefly describe that? Uh, yeah, that's just uh, that's a book that just came out. Uh, the subtitle is like a little bit of a you know marketing tool, but it's you know everything why everything you know about football is wrong. That's not quite the case, but uh, they are really diligent about uh, introducing the concept of uh, of luck, um, which I think is really important for. I mean, obviously most. Fans of the game know it exists, but I think that they don't quite know uh, how to make sense of it in terms of judging how a team's doing in the long term. So, um, so they've done. So that's a good book that people can read. Um, as far as websites, um, definitely, um, you know, James Grayson's site is great. Uh, there's a few new sites. It's almost hard. To Sorry, is that Statsbomb? Uh, Grayson's Statsbomb. Yeah, Statsbomb is very good. Yep, Statsbomb is a good one. A lot of good writers there. Uh, Ted Newton does some some good stuff on that site. Um, ben Pugsley as well. Um, there's, uh, Mike Goodman does some stuff for, uh, for Grantland now. So, uh, uh, so he's writing there. Um, so pretty visible site, obviously for, for baseball people read, read anything on Grantland. Um, I think that the, what I find is a far more sort of, uh, interesting place to sort of get to know these people is, is Twitter. Um, because, you know, the, a lot of the times they're just, they're, they're bypassing blogs and just posting graphs directly to the Twitter feeds and having some fairly interesting interactions there. And you realize how, how big the community actually is. Um, and that's also where there's a lot of crossover between, you know, like I said, hobbyists to analysts and guys who work for, for, for companies like Prozone and Opta. So uh, people can check. I don't even know where they look for this. I think if they, they um, look up Simon Gleave, who uh, it's G-L-E-A-V-E on Twitter, um, and just check who he's following and follow all of those people, um, that would be a good place to start. Um, but, yeah, it's, I think that's one of the problems with the analyst community is that um, – and I think that's one of the reasons why I think Statsbomb was such a good idea because it, it finally gave a sort of general anchor to a lot of guys who were doing work on these – their own blogs, um, and now because there's just so much stuff, a lot of it gets atomized, and it's really hard to sort of get a cohesive sense of where, you know, where it's going. But uh, but I think that's improving, um, you know, day to day, week to week. So uh, so there's generally I think a consensus growing on a lot of a lot of analytics issues. Um, there's divergences as well. Like I'm I'm a huge skeptic of uh, of shot quality. Um, you know how useful it is for individual players and teams. 
Um, and that's a debate that's that's uh, happening in hockey as well, and has been happening for some time. Um, so I think that's sort of an interesting place where where it's going, and and you'll see that debate crop up uh, from time to time as well. Um, Is this sort of getting but, yeah. beyond like the one and nine theory? Is that the idea? Well, I think it's the idea of yeah. I mean, it's uh, you know looking at what you know where. Where teams are taking shots from, because we know, I mean, we don't, the problem is, is that, uh, you know, detailed, uh, uh, place data like XY data that you sort of sometimes see in basketball, uh, that exists, but it's not really, um, publicly available. So, uh, but there is pos- basic positional data for, you know, areas of the, uh, the final third of the pitch that, uh, you know, where, um, sh- shot conversion rates increase. And so obviously you can look at it and say, well, if teams just shot more from these areas, then they would score more goals or, you know, they also know that um, shots taken towards the corners and sides of the net tend to produce a higher conversion rate. And again, the temptation is to say, well, players should just shoot more to the side of the net. And obviously, that's not really how the sport works. And a lot of it, you know, whatever you're doing in that final third, you have to do very, very quickly relative to the position of the opposition players. So as much as that data is interesting as far as knowing the sort of sweet spots on the um, on the pitch, I don't know really know how how predictive or useful that is um, for teams and players. So uh, so yeah, so so that's sort of where where I think we're at. Uh, one thing I've noticed a, a good way to score goals for your team is to have Frank Ribery on it. Yeah, he's very good at getting to that sort of um, the uh, the touch line, like where the uh, you know where the penalty. The penalty box starts in the touchline, and he'll send a, a square ball back across it. And really, he just deflects it off people into the goal. He, uh, yeah, that's a huge skill. That's what that's what you want from your wingers, right? You want them to, uh, or your attacking midfielders, or even your strikers, is is the idea to, to take on, uh, you know, um, either fullbacks or or uh, central defenders near the edge of the box, and then work your way in and and make a really really accurate uh, pass in a short period of time while there's still space available and. You know, that's that's how goals are made, but that's like the hardest thing to do in the sport. Um, and it's also the hardest thing to, from an analytics perspective, to sort of really account for. You know, you can talk about game situations where, you know, that that situation can come easier or harder. You know, like I, I sort of briefly touched on game states before, but if you're a team that's, uh, you know, defending a 1-0 lead um, and your opposition side is pushing up the pitch, to sort of try to equalize, chances are you, you, you'll get a break on a counterattack. You'll have a little more space to do those fancy rivery-esque tricks, right? So uh, so a lot of it is situational. I think that's sort of the next step in analytics is, is getting a sense of that situational data and, and figuring out if we can we can talk about optimal, you know, uh, optimal game situations, optimal, uh, you know, um, uh, sort of uh, defensive positions in order to take advantage of that and, and score more goals, but we'll see. All right. Hey, uh, well, thank you. Uh, thank you so much, Richard Whithall. Yeah, thank you for having me, Carson. It's been great. Yeah, well, stick around for a second. We can talk off air. But uh, for the moment, uh, we'll say that is uh, Richard Whithall of The Score. Uh, you can find his uh, you can find his work there. Uh, I'm Carson Stooley, and this has been Fangraphs Audio. Mm-hmm.